you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Andy Hunt. Andy, do you want to say hi? Hi. Now, uh, we had you on the show, I can't even remember how long ago. Uh, a couple times, I think, over the years, here and there, a few, yeah. couple of interviews. Yeah, we had you on, let's see, episode 277, we talked about the Groves method, of course. Then my search pulls up like everybody else who's talked about you. <laughs> I, I actually, I run into that. It, it's very, it's, it's frustrating, but it's kind of cool when you half remember something and you go to Google it and it turns out that, that you said it you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago or, or something, and you come up as the source, it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's that's probably why I kind of remembered it. Yeah. I know we've had you on at least one or two other times, and I've also interviewed you for other shows. So anyway, fun stuff. But uh, yeah, you're, you're probably better known for Pragmatic Programmer, Pragmatic Bookshelf, the Pragmatic Thinking and Learning. I'm trying to think of what else. Well, and in this context, of course, the first non-Japanese book on Ruby, the first book on Ruby yeah. in the Western world was was Dave Thomas and I doing Programming Ruby, pickaxe book, because it had, you know, a pickaxe on the cover. That was that was sort of our big uh, our big splash into that. But but we're getting ahead of your list of questions here. So we'll we'll get to that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, we've also uh, had you speak at some of the online conferences. So Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but yeah, let's let's jump in and back way up. And why don't you tell us how you got into programming? So I was thinking about this the other night, looking at your your list of questions, and that's one of those, you know, wow, I haven't really thought about that in a, in a very long time. You know, how did I first get interested in programming? And oddly enough, it it came via my interest in in music, or at the time, electronic music. Now I got to qualify this a bit. At the time. The, the, the thing that I built, the first electronic music thing that I built uh, was a little Radio Shack project that consisted of like five resistors and a little, you know, little resistor network ladder with a speaker, a little primitive tone generator with five little switches on a, on a perf board. And this was their electronic organ, you know, DIY kit kind of right. little, little toy thing, right? But it was, you know, it was introduction to soldering and, and to, to discrete components and, you know, for uh, you know, being in junior high, being able to to you know solder something like that up that made noise, that made notes. You know, wow, that was that was really cool. That was that was really interesting. So I was at Radio Shack getting you know parts for that or looking for the next little kit or something, 
And they had this book. It was some sort of like a, like a, a primer or introduction to microcomputers, uh, which is what they called them at the time. Mm-hmm. So this, this was the era of, you know, the Altair and the, you know, the very first, you know, computers that weren't room sized. And this, this little introductory book talked about, you know, the revolution in large scale integration uh, for, for integrated circuits, LSI, and what a, you know, future looking, what a boon that would be, how amazing it would be to get these chips that could do these things and that were so small and have all these capabilities. And it it went to, as I recall, it did, had some basics of like, I'll say like, you know, counting in binary, very simple examples like assembler languages, you know, sort of that level of stuff, description of how you went from discrete components like I'd been playing with and soldering and, and gates and going up from there into integrated circuits and, and into adders and, and CPUs and, you know, a whole thing. And so I'm, I'm, you know, here I am in, this is mid seventies and I'm, I'm reading this going, this is so cool. You know, this, <laughs> this is how you get Star Trek. This is, this is, this is where you start. So that kind of hooked me, you know, at that early age. And um, I got a, a 6502, computer was my first first one I had and I learned to program that in assembly language and then I got a uh, moved up to a bigger and faster Z80 machine running CPM which was you know just glorious that was a, a, a wonderful little system and and on and on and on from there but uh, it's funny you know looking back at uh, kind of the arc of history of computing from from the very earliest days, and uh, Mike Swain's got a really nice book on that. Fire in the Valley. They actually made a TV movie out of it back in the day, and uh, Pragmatic Bookshelf published the third uh, edition of it, which brought it up to date to you know to modern times with the internet, social media, and whatnot. But if you look at the the sort of arc of history. I really kind of was was fortunate enough to be born that I got in on on really the ground floor in the sense of the ground floor of computing being available to the masses. You know, the very first personal computer. I mean, I had right. I had a personal computer 10 years before the IBM PC, you know. Wow. So, you <laughs> that's, know, that's yeah. just mind-blowing to me cuz yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I'm, I, I'm a little bit younger than you, and I just don't remember that era at all. <laughs> it's I mean, well, and, and to me, of course, that was that was my first exposure to the world was kind of as it was being born, you know, as mm-hmm. as, it was, as it was newborn, and you didn't have to work for IBM or Burroughs or Deck and work on the giant mainframe with the starched white shirt and the you know the PhD kind of thing. This was this was the, really the the beginning of Here's something useful that you can screw with, you can play with, mm-hmm. you can mess with. And I've always been an experimenter. You know, as I started the story off, I mean, I was I was in Radio Shack because I was soldering together, you know, this little dinky five-note organ kit and saw, you know, saw this book. So that's kind of how I got into programming in general, just tinkering, experimenting, you know, wanting tools that would do things for me. And that actually segues into how Ruby came across my radar originally. So at the time, and this would have been now late 90s, when uh, Dave and I had kind of just finished up the Pragmatic Programmer book. So we wrote that in kind of the 98, 99 timeframe, and it published, with a, it published in 1999 with a 2000 mm-hmm. copyright date. 
And we had just kind of finished that up. And we were doing a lot of consulting uh, together at the time. So that was how we got into the Pragmatic Programmer book. Just as an aside, that project started off as a white paper. We noticed that... I, right. You know, we noticed that every client we were going to was kind of making the same mistakes over and over again. And pro tip, they still are. <laughs> Why does that not surprise me in the least? Uh, you know, it, it does surprise me, but that's we'll get onto that later. It's like, oh, come on, guys. This is none of this is new. I've been preaching this stuff for 20 years at least. And we still do the same things wrong. Yeah. But uh, but with that and that started off as a little white paper for for our clients because they were all doing the, the same stuff. It's like okay, well here, just think of it this way. Here's some tips and some tools and mm-hmm. some ideas to to make it better. All right. So we did that. We we published that book through uh, Edison Wesley, which was uh, later bought by uh, Pearson Education, and they they yeah. they still publish Pragmatic Programmer book. So we were, we were hot on the success of that. We still had plenty of clients that we were out um, working with. And I was working on this one particular project where the nature of it was very, very much you, need, you needed fast prototypes. It was very experimental. So the domain experts had these kind of wild-eyed notions of what they would like the system to do to analyze the data this way, present it that way, slice it, dice it, have this kind of interface. No, not that, this other thing. Mm-hmm. So it was very, very loose, very experimental, and we needed a language that would be very flexible and fast. So this wasn't something you would do in C++ at the time or, or in Java then later or now. Uh, you know, you, you, didn't, you couldn't do this in a, a static, typed, long compile cycle environment. You needed something loose and kind of rock and rolly to play with. Right. So at the time I was using Perl mm-hmm. and object oriented Perl. It was before Perl five. So it was, you, you could do object oriented programming in Perl, but it was kind of like doing it in assembly language. You know, you had to pass your own thunk along and kind of manage stuff yourself. So it was, Oh, wow. It was, yeah, you could, do <laughs> it, but it wasn't particularly pleasant and it was Perl, which, you know, I, I don't want to knock Perl because, you, again, you have to remember where we came from. Um, right. You know, when I first got into Unix, I was first exposed to the Unix shell, which would have been late, mid to late 80s, mid 80s, I suppose. I was, I just loved the paradigm of having a programmable shell and having all these utilities that you could pipe together and do stuff, right? So you had a, a shell script and you could pipe things from awk and cut and sed and tr and you could just very ad hoc throw together some data analysis and some data massaging, you know, very simply. And it was it was just a, a beautiful idea. I really loved that. But mm-hmm. As you started going across different systems and different idiosyncrasies, that started to get a pain because now awk wasn't quite the same on every machine or the shell right. wasn't quite the same on every machine and you had issues. So by the time Perl kind of came to my attention, I started using it, it solved those problems because now you had a consistent environment that you could right. run wherever. And it was it kind of had the philosophy of you know the shell and, and the utilities, but it was all. It was an actual language. You could do much better parsing and better better data manipulation that way. So mm-hmm. at the time, Perl was 
much better than what had come before, which was much better than what had come before that, and you know, so on going back to <laughs> 6502 Assembler where I started. So here I'm doing this big uh, project in Perl, and and I, I'm, I don't remember offhand you know, what the size was. It was probably on the order of 5,000, 10,000 lines of Perl at the time, maybe. You know, I'd, ha- I'd have to, <laughs> I don't know where I would even check to find out, but let's just say it was around there. And it it kind of worked for that, but it, again, it was painful because it, it wasn't really built to do what what we wanted it to do at the time. So we started looking around saying, okay, the, the promise of a dynamic language, interactive, you know, not, not a compiled language, you know, something scripty that you could just, you had low level operating system access, but you also had proper data structures and IO and you could do things. It was very fast to develop in. What a cool idea. But the Perl environment at the time wasn't cutting it. So what else you got? What else is out? Tongue in cheek wanted to say JavaScript. Yeah, not then. <laughs> not then. <laughs> that, night, that nightmare hadn't started for a while yet. Um, but, uh, but, but, but we were looking around, and there were tons yeah. of experimental – I mean, there's always tons of experimental languages and, and things people are playing with out there. You know, not all the winners make it to the, to the, the Tiobe Tiob index. You know, there's all kinds of stuff out there. So we started looking around. I looked, I looked a little bit, but Dave, Dave Thomas really – you know, he really sunk in and started digging all the dark corners he could find to find a language that would sort of fit the bill of, of, of what I was looking for, for this, this particular thing. And, you know, we had some false starts, you know, he came up with some stuff, I found some stuff and, yeah, well, this was kind of neat, but it didn't do this well, or it didn't do that well, or it was ugly. So nothing really kind of clicked. And then one day, he sends me this email and it's like, you have got to look at this. And he'd found Ruby in Japan. And I'm looking at it and it's like, wow, oh, okay, this, this looks pretty promising. This looks kind of cool. You know, this might actually work for, you know, the kind of things that, that you know, we want to do. Um, and that was, how it, that was how it got started. So we you know, ended up using it. I'm not sure if we used it on, on that project. I think it was a later... Uh, evolution of that particular mm-hmm. project, we we started using it, but we were able to start using it for you know some things that we were doing. It's like this is a really nice, really sweet language. You know, very consistent. You know, very unsurprising. If you think if you're not quite sure how something works and you guessed, you would guess right, and it would mm-hmm. just work. And so all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, this is really this is really kind of awesome. I can write like pages and pages of code. And it actually works. You know, if you try to do that in C, C++, Java, <laughs> JavaScript, you know, it's, it's rarely quite that, quite that straightforward. You know, you run into issues even just getting it to compile. And here was something where it just worked. That's like, wow, that's, that's pretty cool. So we started getting into it a little bit more and then realized that there wasn't really a good source of documentation for the language in the libraries, uh, at least not in English at the time. So, you know, again, thinking of the, you know, pragmatic programmer started as just a little white paper. We're like, okay, well, we'll write a book, but it's not going to be a big book. We're just going to write a skinny little overview of the language and, you know, try and get people interested in it. 
Well, yeah, even <laughs> that was some several hundred pages, you know, and it's and, you know, Dave, Dave worked on it a, a couple of years ago to bring it up to speed for the latest, you know, two O series of, of Ruby. And I think when he was done his 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 last round of modifications, it tops out around 860 pages, which was funny because it's like it's starting to get up to the limit of what, you know, the printing press can actually handle. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's not like, you know, you've never had a software project grow beyond its original requirements, right? That doesn't happen. No, I've, I've never had that happen. And never, I've never seen never, that. Never, never had a client complaining about, about that either. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that was kind of how that how that evolved and came to be. And it was, it's still, you know, one of my favorite languages. I kind of have, I kind of have three categories of languages that I reach for these days. If it's something kind of system level, I'll, I'll jump into plain old straight C as God intended. You know, <laughs> not, C, not C++, not, you know, just straight up C. And most of the time it's something in Ruby. But then lately I've been uh, tinkering as I've been known to do, and experimenting with Elixir on the Erlang VM and, and Phoenix and Ecto and that whole infrastructure. And it's, it's really interesting because, you know, again, I get that kind of feeling of, oh, wow, that's taken care of for me. That, that just works. You know, mm-hmm. it has a lot of the kind of, of that flavor from Ruby, which, which is sort of unsurprising because, again, a lot of the, the folks who had, um, you know, worked with Ruby a lot were contributing and, and working in the uh, the Elixir space too. So kind of like, okay, well, what what lessons have we learned? What's cool? What's helpful? And how can we apply that in this you know very different kind of environment? So so that's kind of that's kind of pleasant. So if I'm in a, you know an experimental mood, I'll kind of look there. And in meat and potatoes, I'll go to 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 Ruby or or down to C. So that's kind of where uh, where I had when I have the rare luxury of actually getting hands on code. Which in in these days of you know <laughs> GDPR and foster regulations and and you know international oh, yeah I, you know I spend unfortunately a lot of my time on uh, accounting and legal issues more than uh, than actual code or methodology but you know that's sort of the price you pay I suppose yeah it's just it's it's interesting to hear you talk through these issues especially where it's you know I need a language that has these qualities. I mean, I think a lot of times we're just looking for a tool that we can bang on our problem enough to get stuff done <laughs> instead of thinking about, you know what, this is kind of wrench shaped and it's really not made for banging on stuff. <laughs> that, well put, well put. That's, that is, that is exactly, exactly the problem. And I mean, unfortunately, you know, it's not even this is wrench shaped. It's, this is sort of like, it's like a rock and, you know, if I just bang on it hard enough, it'll, it'll give up eventually. Um, yep. Yeah, it's well, it, it's funny because you know, if you look at the kind of arc from linear procedural programming through to object oriented programming through to functional programming, you know, these are very different styles and I would argue very different levels of abstraction. So, mm-hmm. when you're you know, back at back in my day when you know, dinosaurs great. <laughs> And, uh, you know, we coded on stone tablets. I, I can't claim that. Jerry Weinberg can say they coded on stone tablets, you know, <laughs> nice. <laughs> at a vacuum tube days, right? But it wasn't quite that bad. But, you know, the stuff that you learned 
in college or university back then was very low level because you had to. You know, if you wanted to mm-hmm. make a list, you had to know how to code a, a you know bidirectional link list from scratch because you probably would have to. You know, there was it was. You know, I kind of joke that you know back then, software development consisted of vi main dot c and then you run a dot out and that was kind of your whole mm-hmm. world. You weren't connected to stuff. You didn't have a whole lot of library support. You didn't have a lot of things done for you. Uh, you kind of had to build your whole world a lot of the time. And then you look at something like, say, Elixir these days, where you know their one module that that uh, operates on lists, their EMU module does you know ninety <laughs> yeah. percent of what you would need in an application. It's like, well, dig this out of this list, do this with it, apply this, you know, the visitor pattern. You had mm-hmm. to have the Gang of Four Patterns book to describe visitor for, you know, C++ and curly brace languages, and it was a big deal. It's not a big deal. It, in, a, in a proper language, it's, it's, it's part of the language. It's just, yes, apply this function to all these things and do this stuff with it. So, you know, on the one hand, it's very positive to see the growth through all these languages over time and see that, you know, so much, so much more is more capability is available to us that we don't have to go down to the the atoms, you know, and quarks to right. build up reality from scratch. You know, and if you look at an even higher level, look at like the uh, the JavaScript environment. You know, you have whole capabilities for a website, and boom, there's a you know there's no, there's a module for that, and you just put it yeah. in. That comes with a with a cost, though a price, of course. We always have you know, had that saying that you know, well, well, we get to stand on the shoulders of giants, uh, especially in open source. You know, we have all these wonderful contributions in in the Ruby world and with the gems and and with uh, the Node repositories and Elixir, with Hex, all this stuff. But I have to feel, at least in the in the JavaScript world, because it's so popular and so crowded. And it's such custom to just kind of grab a couple modules and slap them in and hope for the best that instead of standing on the shoulders of giants, it's more like a, a human pyramid of fainting goats. So, <laughs> you know, you're standing up at the top and one little thing goes wrong and ah, boom, the whole thing falls over. You remember, was it, uh, was it last year? Last year, the year before, there was that whole big fracas with the left pad being pulled from yeah. the repositories, right? It was, you know, you see the news and, and all the, the Twitter and all the, you know, the posts mm-hmm. about that kind of thing. And you're trying to explain that to someone not in the industry. Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> you know, what is, you know, this is why aliens don't visit us anymore, right? This is just... <laughs> This is an embarrassing level of you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. You know, you don't put stuff in vendor, you know, you should put stuff in vendor local. You should do this. You should cash that. You, should, you don't depend on, don't randomly put stuff in. You don't know what it's doing. You know, touches of sorcerer's apprentice there. You know, well, let's try this spell, see what happens. You know, not always a good idea. Yeah. So, so yeah, that kind of has a bit of a dark side to it. But again, it's, as, as you say, I think it's actually very critically important when you're starting off a project to do exactly what you suggested. Say, well, you know, all right, what is the best tool for this mm-hmm. particular application, right? If this is a really simple kind of, of CRUD style thing, Rails is great, right? Yep. If it's even simpler, have the kid down the street do it in PHP. 
you know, I wouldn't do that personally. I'm, I'm not a fan. <laughs> it's, um, it's there. It's kind of like McDonald's. It's high sodium. It's not good for you, but it's convenient and it's everywhere. So, you know, there's, there is a perfect use case for that. Mm-hmm. You know, simple, straightforward, do it. You get it done, get it out the door. If you've got something with high transactional requirements, you know, feeds coming from different places, you know, Phoenix Elixir base is probably better. But, you know, it all, it all depends. And that's something, unfortunately, I think we really tend to lose sight of you know, you go to conferences, you go to talks, and people base their whole identity on what environment they're programming in at the moment. So folks will introduce themselves as, I'm a Java programmer, or I'm a, you know, uh, I'm a Ruby programmer, a Rails programmer, yep. I'm a JavaScript programmer, I'm a front-end, you know, maybe I'm a front-end developer, I'm a server developer, but usually it's, it's very tied to whatever environment they happen to be in at the moment. Which is kind of funny because, and I, I really should go through, I added up once, I think around, at least in the time sort of after Prague Prague, I had professionally written code in something like 35 different languages. Oh, wow. Just as a guess. And, you know, they've been more since then. Um, <laughs> you know, so you really can't get stuck into this rut of, I know this language and this library and this database and, and these patterns, and I'm done now. That That's my world. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, no. You know, the world is changing too fast for that sort of thing. You can't, you really can't afford to get stuck in that kind of rut. You know, we said back in the in the Prague Prague book itself that at a minimum, you should learn a new language a year. Yeah. Just to see, okay, well, how do you solve problems in this style versus that style? You know, and even if you never write code in that particular language, it gives you insight on other ways to solve problems. And it doesn't even matter if it's if it's a code problem or a problem with workflow or a problem with people. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the other thing, right? You know, we, we claim that we're coders, we're programmers, we're software developers. That's all crap. We're problem solvers. Yep. That's what it comes down to. And yes, a lot of the time we solve problems using code or some technological solution, but not always, you know, and we can use those same principles when looking at, you know, teams and people and organizations and whatnot, because we're here to solve problems, not just, you know, sling some assembly code around. Yep, absolutely. I, I was talking to James Shore on Monday and he basically said the same thing. He said that programming is taking all the messy bits of human existence and making it so that a computer can do part of it. <laughs> That's pretty well put. And yeah, and I think, I think we forget, I, I, there, there's a real danger in forgetting just how messy the real world can be. Mm-hmm. Because we kind of isolate ourselves from that, probably by choice, because we chose this profession. We chose to work in the ways that we do. And when you're, you know, fortunate enough to create a whole software world from scratch, you're writing your own, your own program, your own framework, your own way of doing things, you're building that world yourself. You know, it's, it's almost like, like writing a novel. You're, you're building this world out and you've got a lot of control and you can, you don't have to have mess in it if you don't want. Things can be clean, things can work. And I think we get 
kind of suckered in and sort of used to that, that, well, all I have to do is get the, you know, get the algorithm and the syntax right. And look, it just works. Yeah. Well, that ain't the case out here in the, in the, 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 the meat world, you know, yeah. not that straightforward. You can do all the right things and still lose, you know, people can still act oddly, irrationally, selfishly, you know, all the things, all the, what was it? Wikipedia lists over 90 common cognitive biases that we all have. Right. Uh, and those are the common ones. You know, I know, <laughs> both know people who can blow right past that limit. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but I think, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I think we, we tend to try to forget that and, and it doesn't work out well. Uh, you got to remember the world is messy. And so, yeah, we need languages and environments that help us deal with a messy world. So any language that, that has a REPL, you know, uh, your, your Rubies, your closures, your Elixirs, that kind of stuff is going to be much more flexible and forgiving and let you experiment more, mm -hmm. and let you play with things and find out what's going on rather than, you know, some long compile cycle, some long, well, I've got to compile and distribute and run a Docker thing over here and pop this. And, and 10 minutes later, I get to actually see what I did. I've forgotten what I did by now. Yep. yep. Uh, you know, I mean, we've got very short-term memory uh, uh, loss that we're working with here. So I, I need feedback right now. I need to see, you know, am I heading the right direction? Is this, does this have a prayer of working? And anything that delays that is is just not not going to work for me. Yep, absolutely. So, what are you working on these days? Well, a couple things. Uh, as I say, the 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 current you know legal uh, framework internationally, uh, because the Pragmatic Bookshelf, of course, has uh, has readers all over the world. Right. Uh, so that's been taking up a, a an unfortunate amount of my time getting things uh, compliant and ready for that. But on the, the um, fun side, we've got some, some really cool books come out lately that uh, we've gotten a lot of nice comments on. People really seem to enjoy. In fact, <laughs> some fellow wrote in the other day, uh, we send a newsletter out um, every Wednesday. If you, if you sign up um, at pragprog.com for the newsletter, we announce here's the, the book coming out this week and here's you know, the books coming out the next weeks. And I usually put a little couple paragraphs in there of something uh, fun of what happened on this day or uh, I made some crack about JavaScript the other day being it could be it could be fine or it could be as as, uh, as bad as gas station sushi you know which <laughs> can range from dangerous to, to downright fatal and, and so you know I, I'll put jokes in and, and you know you know observations and tips and yeah. stuff like that and so some guy wrote in and said, are you guys buying our Slack data? And I'm like, what? No. A, I didn't think you could do that. You surely shouldn't be able to do that. And, right. and we don't buy any data from anyone. But his complaint was that every newsletter came out, he said, whatever the, their development team had been talking about for the last couple of days, we addressed in the next newsletter. <laughs> Here's the book you need. He's like, you guys are listening in on us. It's like, Thanks, I think, but no, we're just trying to help. <laughs> <You know? Yep. laughs> just, just coming out with the helpful stuff. But so that was that was kind of funny. It's like, all right, well, clearly, you know, our choice in topics currently has has been hitting some nerves. So that's that's a good thing. So that's fun. Then personally, on the fun side of stuff, I um, I wrote a science fiction novel, adventure novel last year, uh, and published it. And that was Conglomora. And I'm just wrapping up the sequel to it. 
as we speak, in fact. So I hope to have the sequel to Conglomora, which is Conglomora Found, which will be out uh, late this summer, uh, I'm hoping, unless I get you know distracted by something, because I do get distracted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, you ask for URLs later on, but that's at conglomora.com, two M's. Or just Google for me. You know, you'll find it. So that's coming out. That's great fun. The Grows Method, which we had spoken about some time ago, I have and still have this, this persistent idea of trying to convince people that software development and organizations have to be dynamic, not static. So when you're looking at a static method, when you're looking at a static org chart, when you're looking at static anything, you're going to die. It's a dynamic world. You know, you've got to be, these things have to be dynamic. That's why I was interested in the Agile movement. And, you know, Dave and I were both um, authors of of one of the seven, two of the 17 authors of the Mm -hmm. Agile Manifesto, trying to convince people that you needed a more organic, more dynamic approach to development. And I was kind of saddened to see over the last, you know, what, 17 years now since the Agile uh, Manifesto, that you know, folks still aren't getting it. They're not getting benefit from it. You know, I've been quoted as saying that to most people, Agile means they do half of Scrum badly. (laughs) I was going to say, I talk to people and it's like, we do Scrum. Oh, really? Yeah, we have a stand-up every day. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, and, uh, you know, and I'm I'm sure I've said this on, on some of the interviews, but, you know, I've had folks saying, oh, you know, yeah, we have continuous builds. They go on Friday. (laughs) <laughs> every friday we yep. have continuously uh, right you know you know this guy they're just just not not getting the or better yeah oh, sure we're agile we use jira oh i've heard that too <laughs> you know and 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 I'm, the sad thing is i've i've had people say this in all earnestness they're not trolling yeah. they're not you know trying to get my dander up it works but uh you know they're they're actually serious so one of the big, the two biggest things I think that were missing from the whole agile movement was, you know, incorporating continuous learning as part of the process, as part of the methodology. Mm-hmm. You know, your learning is personal, but the team has to learn. The organization has to learn, has to evolve. So right. that was the stuff I wanted to try to address. It's like, you know, the things that you're learning and experimenting with belong in the backlog. Yep. Right? That's work that the team has to do to keep up. So I'd started working on that with my my good friend, uh, Jared Richardson, who unfortunately untimely passed away a year ago, December. And with with his sudden passing, I really sort of lost the uh, momentum and really couldn't couldn't work on it for the better part of a year. But just the last month or two, I've I've, uh, got a couple friends helping me out. And we're taking a fresh look at, you know, better ways to integrate learning and personal and team and organizational growth into a development project anchored with solid development practices, anchored with responsive executives and servant leadership from middle management, and really fix the things that need fixing still to this day. So we're working on that at growsmethod.com. You know, we, it's uh, a lot of the stuff is is stale and old because I haven't been working on it. But we're slowly getting back in and uh, you know bringing that back uh, into something that I hope will be useful for folks. Yeah, that makes sense. I've uh, I've been talking to a lot of people about automation and processes, and it it 
it's kind of DevOps, but it, it ties in with what you're talking about where it's like, look, you know, we know how all of this works and we just make as much of it automatic as possible. And then we talk about it. Yeah. And that's, it's that last part that's the most important. And then we talk about it. You know, there's, we still have to get people out of the mindset of you figure something out, you set the rules in stone and now you're good. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work. That you know, it's it's arguable if that ever actually worked. But right. kind of the the naive approach that you know someone straight out of business school or or new to the job market might might think, you know, that sort of naive. Well, we just have to get it right. We just have to figure it out, and then we're all set. No, you're you're, you're never all set. You know, it's always changing. It's it's like it's it's more like cooking. You know, you can cook the best meal in the world. Tomorrow you're going to be hungry again. You know, it's, it's, you're not done. Yeah. It's, it's an ongoing process and the world keeps changing clearly. I mean, any, any day you look at Twitter, you can, you can tell the world is changing. Um, (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) So, and that was, and that was still, that was the whole point of agile was be responsive to change. So these folks who say, oh yeah, we use Jira or we do this or we do Scrum or we do Scrum and XP or we do Scrum Butt or we, we do Grows or we do whatever the hell, that, yeah. I don't really care. That's actually immaterial. The real question is, are you getting software out the door that's providing value to the company and keeping the company in business and afloat? Are you doing that reliably and regularly? And when things change radically, you know, the EU comes out with some new law. The Congress passes some stupid law. You know, they do, you know, the market, you know, Microsoft buys this company. Google buys this company. Google buys Microsoft. Well, you know, yep. Apple buys Netflix. Well, you know, some, you know, earth-shaking thing happens and you should, your dev team should say, okay, well, we just have to fix this one little thing over here and, and we, get, we have this. We've got this. We're, we're, we're agile. We can change to adapt to whatever changed. If well, you, and you're, adapt to what's changing, then you're agile. Yeah, well, and you're, you're talking about things that are kind of out there that are beyond your control, but people's circumstances change. The market changes. The, the, the team changes. The, the management, you know, higher management changes. All of a sudden, you have to solve different problems. I mean, even the things that are localized to your company aren't static. And so you can't even count on that. And so you have to be, you know, you have to be able to adapt to that or adapt to the big things like you're talking about GDPR. Yeah. You, know, you, you have to be able to adapt to that. And, you know, it, it may or may not deeply affect your development practices, but you probably should be talking about it and working through how that affects anything else that you're working on. And that's, and I think that's one of the big differences now versus 10, 20, 30 years ago is the rest of the world is kind of catching up to us. You know, so there was a time where the EU, Congress, mm-hmm. you know, other lawmaking bodies really didn't give a crap about computers or the Internet. It was a very minor issue if, if they considered it at all. And, you know, the right. biggest biggest source of change was was doing a, you know, an, an apt upgrade or, you know, a brew upgrade or, or you know, uh, you know any of these sorts of things, you're updating your, your, your tool set. And oops, that doesn't work anymore. Oh, new version of SSL. Now this other thing doesn't work. We have to change this. So there's that kind of, you know, low level technical, all right, somebody changed something and now the kernel doesn't compile and we got to go fix this, whatever. But in the modern day and age, you know, we've kind of come to the attention of, of the authorities now, you know, it ain't the wild west anymore. So, you know, GDPR, I think is a really good example because 
here's something, here's legislation that, you know, arguably on the surface of it is a good idea. You know, you want to rein in the giant data vacuuming companies that are, you know, using your data perhaps in ways that no one knows about. So, okay, yeah, good, good plan. The implementation, of course, with with most of these laws, not to pick on the EU because Congress is just as bad, the implementation is crap because lawyers make bad programmers. So, you know, (laughs) right? Because you you get all these unintended consequences. Um, (laughs) These issues, you are just as liable if you're an app developer selling a single 99 cent uh, app, you're just as liable as Google. You know, yep. with their teams of lawyers and teams of people and, you know, the GDPR regs spell out, well, you need an officer to do this and a committee to do that. And it's like, yeah. dude, I'm two people. I, you know, this yep. is this is kind of overkill. But that's the thing is that, you know, what that that particular legislation goes down to the detail of here's how you need to design your databases. And here's how you need to design your systems. And you have to be able to do this and you have to be able to do that. And you know, this is, I think, the tip of the iceberg that you're just starting to see, you know, sort of wide scale legislation of what you can and cannot do in a software product. And I suspect, given, you know, given the arc of things, this is just the very beginning. Yeah. And that's going to be, you know, 10 years from now, that's going to be far more intrusive and, you know, something that you know, uh, programmers will have to spend a lot more time understanding issues of privacy, issues of ethics, issues of, you know, compliance across international boundaries, because everyone's company is international if you're on the web. So, you know, they pass a law in, you know, Sri Lanka, it could matter to you. And so I think that's, that's actually an area that we're going to see a lot more of for a while. You know, at some point, it'll shake out, things will get normalized and homogenized. There'll be a, you know, a standard way of doing things. It'll become common practice. Right. But those that kind of stuff takes 10, 20 years. You know, that doesn't happen overnight. So I think it'll probably be kind of rough going where, you know, I, I joke, you know, you claim to be a full stack developer. Honey, let me tell you, full stack starts down at transistor gates and goes up to international treaties. And mm-hmm. if you handle all the layers in between, yes, you're a full stack developer. <laughs> yep, absolutely. All right. Well, I, I kind of skip past things that you're known for. We talked a little bit about that at the start of the show. Are there any things that you're really just proud of that you've done? Most of, well, yeah, all of them. Sure. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, there's the, there's the things that you think you do that are really cool. And then there's the stuff that people latch on to that they think are, are even cooler. You know, Dave and I wrote the Pragmatic Programmer book really just to help our clients, to help a hand, handful of people. And it has become, you know, literally a classic in the field. Uh, and a field where there's not many classics. You know, you don't see a lot of 20-year-old books in the tech bestsellers. You know, you, you, know, you get things like Mythical Man Month or... or, or um, mm-hmm clean code perhaps, you know, this kind of stuff. But it's not a field that's that's littered with, you know, a lot of classics or a lot of, of standard base of, of literature. So to be consistently in the, you know, top 10 best programming books, top five best programming books, still 20 years later, that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's really impressive. And I'm, I'm proud of that. I mean, a lot of that was kind of just the, the, the fortune of timing. 
you know, if we came out with that book today, I don't think it would be received in the same way. If we'd mm-hmm. come out with it 10 years earlier than we did, I don't think it would have been received um, right. in the same way. So, yeah, some of that was just uh, just the fortune of good timing. And even then, th- th- it was kind of funny. When uh, we first sent the Pragmatic Programmer drafts out for review, there were a number of you know, well-respected technical leaders at the time who said it was absolute shite. It was, it was rubbish. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, how dare you publish this without, without more code? And how dare you talk about these squishy soft skills and people things? And, you know, that has, you know, programmers have no business talking about that sort of, sort of attitude. My, how times change, but (laughs) you know, so, so that, so yeah, we were a little, we weren't sure if that was going to fly at all, really. It was, it Uh was, it was a bit of a stretch. And, you know, you, you see the things people talk about now that are very human issues, you know, trying to be more inclusive and, and recognizing, you know, various groups of people that we've filtered out of the profession for whatever reason of, you know, gender, skin, color, nationality, race, planet of origin, whatever. You know, we've gotten much better, I think, about talking about soft skills, human issues, you know, the fact that these are people that are, that are working together here. So that, that helps. I'm glad to see that kind of coming along. So yeah, the Pragmatic Programmer book, very proud of that. It was, it was luck to a good degree, but we also had our finger on what the real problems were at the time. And as fate would have it, they're still the same problems, you know, this much later. So it's still, it's still useful and still mm-hmm. You know, the first edition of the Ruby book, here was something that, you know, both Dave and I felt was an important technology, an important philosophy, a thriving, you know, a a burgeoning community of, you know, caring professionals that deserved a voice, deserved to be heard. So we, you know, we did that first version together and got that out there. Uh, Dave went on and, you know, did subsequent versions. That was originally published through Addison Wesley. Mm -hmm. I got the rights back for the second and subsequent edition. So now that's a a pragmatic bookshelf book. And, you know, I'm glad to see that is still doing well. I'm glad to see the Ruby community has, you know, grown to the sort of epic heights that it has. You know, I hope I would like to think that our early involvement and our early promotion with the pickaxe book and with, you know, talking about it, with using it in our own business, you know, I'd like to think that all that helped sort of fertilize, you know, the early years of the movement. And certainly, you know, Ruby as as a global force has grown far beyond, uh, I think, what any of us would have would have forecast back in the day. Uh, And I think the same is true with with the, the agile movement. You know, this that was kind of a random, hey, you know, it, it was common at the time for folks to get together, consultants to get together and say, hey, let's have a summit on this, that, or the other thing. You know, let's go to the summit on unit testing, or let's go talk about this or whatnot. And here was this idea of, well, let's get a couple of folks together and talk about these kind of lightweight methodologies. You know, mm-hmm. Kent Beck had the, the extreme, uh, extreme mm-hmm. program. Race Change original book, you know, uh, Sutherland them had the, the scrum uh, stuff that they've been working on for a good long while. Uh, Jim Highsmith had his adaptive software development. Alistair Coburn had his crystal stuff. We had the pragmatic programmer, uh, mm-hmm. bits, which were, you know, right in line with this, you know, flexible, responsive style of development. 
And so it was, you know, again, kind of lucky and random. We, you know, a handful of people got together. Bob Martin mostly uh, drove that, I think, if I remember rightly. And, and Alistair and, and, and Jim and, you know, we all got together and tried to figure out, okay, what's in common from all these things that we're trying to articulate? You know, clearly the way we've been doing it, you know, the CMM approaches, the, uh, you know, waterfall, which was based on a misunderstanding the whole time anyway, mm-hmm. you know, all this kind of stuff wasn't working and the stuff that we're doing does work, but we're all describing it differently. So, right. Common, you know, so we just kind of tried to find common ground that we could then sort of agree on and say, okay, well, here's the stuff we really want to emphasize. And for that little meeting and that little kind of intellectual exercise, having it become a global force of software development, you know, 17, 18 years on, that's pretty amazing to, to have seen that happen. And, you know, it grew out of the same things as with the Ruby book, the same as with the pragmatic program. It's like, well, stuff's broken. What can I, what can we do to suggest mm-hmm. to try and fix it? And, you know, on each of these occasions, that took off to be something, apparently, you know, we were right. <laughs> yep, absolutely. popular. I don't know. <laughs> so how did the pragmatic bookshelf come about? I know that we're over on our time, but if you've got time, I'd love to hear that story. Oh, sure. Uh, well, actually, it, it, it kind of ties in with the story well. So Dave and I had written the Pragmatic Programmer book. We had written the Programming Ruby Pickaxe book. At the time, both of those were with um, Addison Wesley. And <clears throat> we were still out consulting. We had this, this was, you know, around <laughs> just after the turn of the century. God, that sounds awful. But <laughs> <laughs> books, uh, we had done the, the Agile Manifesto thing in 2001. Uh, so that was starting to, to gain some ground. So we were kind of riding this, this crest of, of, you know, stuff that was happening. And we had the typical, you know, pre, pre-burst clients as consultants. So we had these clients who were just burning VC money with lighters, you know, putting in volleyball courts and foosball tables and, you know, just literally straight out of like a Dilbert cartoon or, or, you know, maybe an XKCD or something at the time. But, uh, you know, all these, these, these sort of, of dot-com boom clients and mm-hmm. crash came. And all of a sudden, none of our clients had any money. Their handshake deals disappeared. Their VC dried up. Their volleyball courts got repossessed. Not sure how that would, <laughs> but anyway, you get the picture. Our clients all imploded sort of at once. Um, and it's like, well, you know, for a consultant, that's, that's kind of rough. So we, you know, Dave and I looked around like, well, what else could we do? You know, literally just what could we do to make some money? So our first idea was to have a kind of a developer starter kit where you would subscribe and get this box and it would have some books in it and some toys and some training material, and it would teach you how to do things properly. And mm-hmm. it have you know, enough copies for the whole team. And we researched shipping and, you know, getting little rubble, rubber ducks from China because, you know, for rubber ducking, you have to have mm-hmm. one, everyone in the team, obviously, and all these kinds of little bits. And then realized, well, the, the flaw with this plan was we didn't have enough books to, to, to satisfy that. You know, we had, we had the Bragg Prog book, we had the Ruby book, but right. we needed 
stuff on version control. We need stuff on unit testing, on automation and builds, on on requirements, on retrospectives, on you know whatever. And so I was like, okay, well, let's just start a little self-publishing company, and we'll write a couple books for this package, for this starter kit idea. So Dave and I wrote the first books on version control and unit testing. He basically did the version control one, which was CVS at the time. And I did the unit testing one, uh, which was in Java. And then our friend uh, Mike Clark came in and did the automation book. Mm -hmm. And so we called those three books the starter kit. Because oh, that okay. to our mind, and we sold it as, as a package. You could get the three books as the starter kit because this was the most critical skills that any team had to have. You had to have everything in version control. You have to have unit testing. You have to have automated and reliable builds. Without mm -hmm. that, you don't bother talking to the customer. Don't bother with a backlog. Don't bother with stories. It doesn't matter because you're not going to be able to do anything. Right. So you've got to start with that. And so so we did that, and that was the start of our publishing company. Uh, and then we got other folks in to write about the other topics, Agile retrospectives and more books on Ruby, books on Rails mm -hmm. as, that, as that came along, books on other languages, other testing. The uh, It was funny, the version control book, the first one was CVS, the second one was in subversion, and right. the <laughs> was it. And we'll do the fourth one in you know, whatever comes after get because the mm -hmm. world always changes. But that was how we got started. And then it just kind of, you know, just literally went from there. And, you know, pretty much still to this day, people come to us with manuscript ideas. You know, we, 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 we do a little bit of going out at conferences and talking to people and seeing, you know, if they'd be interested in writing for us. But, you know, by and large, people just come to us with, here is this idea I am on fire about and I want to write about. And maybe mm -hmm. how to use, uh, how to do your Rails development in Docker environment. Um, we just came out with that uh, just a week or two ago. Um, Rail, Rails, uh, Docker for Rails developers. Right. Um, which then people tell us, oh, by the way, your title is kind of a misnomer because it doesn't matter really that it's Rails. Those are the examples. But what you're talking about is equally good if you're doing, you know, any of these other flavors of development so but but that's that's kind of how it goes you know people people come to us because they're passionate about trying to fix a problem and i have every empathy with that because that's kind of what i've done all day long here's a problem and i think i see a way that i can fix it and suddenly that becomes a thing a popular thing that lasts decades yeah <laughs> um so you know people come to us with hey this is really cool. This is important. People need to know about that. Mm -hmm. And then that's who we'll accept and we'll publish. Cool. Well, I don't know if I have anything else to ask. <laughs> so let's... That just come out covers it. Um, I think you had some, the URLs earlier. I'll just, uh, I'll just recap where you can find me on the web. Yeah, absolutely. Google's usually good. If you just Google Andy Hunt, I'm, I'm still the top hit. And that, that's, that's been that way for a long time. That's kind of cool, too. You know, it'd be worse if your name was John Smith. That'd be, you know, slightly harder. Yeah. But <laughs> toolshed.com is my homepage. And uh, I've got a, a now page there that I try to keep up to date uh, with describing what I'm doing, what I'm, where I'm going to be, you know, or what I'm up to. Pragmatic Bookshelf is at pragprog.com, P-R-A-G. Mm -hmm. E R O G, 
And the Grows Method is at growsmethod.com. It's a little out of date and stale at the moment, but we're actively working on that. We should have some new stuff soon. Conglomora.com is my novel. You can find that on Amazon, of course, uh, or the website. And the sequel will be out later this summer. You can follow me on Twitter at PragmaticAndy. And thanks so much for having me today. Thank you. Do you have some picks for us, some things you want to shout out about? This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the hosting provider I use for devchat.tv. I also use it for my applications that manage the RSS feeds, scheduling, and sponsorships involved in delivering these shows. DigitalOcean is easy to use, has data centers all over the world, and provides terrific services including server hosting and object storage for delivering your web applications and assets quickly and easily. I use DigitalOcean because I love their interface. I get SSD storage for my servers, and their support replies quickly. So go check them out at digitalocean.com. Things I want to shout out about. Wow. You know, you every time, you always ask me this on each one of these interviews, and I'm always yeah. like, uh. <laughs> 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 totally gets, even though I know you're going to ask it, it catches me by surprise every single time. Yeah. Um, things to shout out about. Wow. No, you know, every, everything's cool. <laughs> well, cool. I'll, I'll just encourage people to go check out pragprog.com. It's pragprog.com, right? Yeah, pragprog.com. Um, yeah. yeah, the again, I mean, the, probably the the most exciting stuff is the last couple of books that we've come out with. There's just some really nice titles in there, some really great ideas, some really passionate authors, and you know, stuff that people need, stuff people need to know how to how to not write JavaScript that sucks. Uh, you know, how to use uh, Docker and Rails effectively together, how to do better testing, better coding, how to think functionally, you know, it's all in all the stuff we think is important is in there. Yep. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah, I'm just going to throw in a few picks. Uh, so I've been cleaning my office, which incidentally also involves cleaning, <laughs> cleaning my computer up and things like that. Right. So my hard drive was so full that it was complaining whenever it tried to do anything. And uh, so anyway, I've got a few picks. Uh, the first one is uh, Google Drive. They have, a, I don't know what it is, a, a widget thingy that you install on your, for Mac OS. And uh, yeah, then I've just been moving stuff over to the Google Drive folder that's on my machine. And that has, it syncs it to the cloud and then puts a placeholder in place. So that's freed up 100 gigs or so on my hard drive. Um, I've also been deleting and removing, moving all of the stuff that I've downloaded because, you know, the downloads folder just turns into a big junkyard. <laughs> it uh, does. So, uh, so yeah, I've been doing that. And then I've, as I've been cleaning up my office, I've been using the ScanSnap, what is this, S1300i. And it's it's just kind of a portable scanner that you can scan receipts and stuff with. And the upgraded version, it, I didn't have this before, but it does now. It has a receipt tracking program and a scans organizing program. And that's just been super nice. So uh, as I'm cleaning up my office and, you know, I, I've, I've been finding tax documents and receipts and stuff, and it's just cleared a lot of that up. So I'm, I'm really uh, happy about that. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Andy, you've told us where to find you and where all of your books and things are. So Really appreciate you coming and, and talking to us for the last hour or so. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we will catch everybody next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. 
Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.